Amen. Thanks, Barry. As he said, my name is Jonathan Winfrey, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, if you have a worship folder, it should be an insert in that worship folder. And on one side is the passage, on the other side is the outline. <clears throat> We're in the third week of a series during the season of Advent. And if you are new to Advent, or maybe you grew up in a church that, that didn't talk much about Advent, it is in the church calendar the four weeks leading up to the celebration of Christmas. Uh, and it comes from a Latin word that means uh, the arrival. Uh, and so we are preparing ourselves, anticipating, looking forward to the arrival of Jesus. Uh, as we look at this passage again this morning, we're looking at uh, four angelic visits uh, each week of Advent. And this morning we're going to look at the angelic visit to Mary uh, from yet again Gabriel. Uh, we've got another visit from an angel to another frightened person, and you're going to see over the course of the Advent series a pattern, I hope, and that is uh, someone shows up and someone's scared, and what they tell them is, don't be afraid. Uh, and so, as we have continued to work through this, I, I hope that uh, in the words of one writer, the tall tale uh, of Jesus' Advent, the ridiculousness of it continues to boggle your mind. Uh, it's a teenage girl from nowhere, pregnant with the maker and the king of everywhere, right? Uh, literally, Nazareth would have been like Fort Meade or Bradley Junction. Some of you may not even know where Bradley Junction is. You can blink and you're through it. People's reaction, the king has been born where? Are you, are you serious? Never even heard of that place. Uh, one writer says, nothing can prepare you for the birth of God. A six-pound, four-ounce Jewish boy with dark brown curly hair, born in the fall or the winter of 5 B.C. in a shepherd's cave on the side of a hill in the city of Bethlehem in the Roman province of Judea in Western Asia. So it took, takes place in space and time. Very real, very, very, uh, very tangible thing, this birth of Jesus uh, I'm going to reference a couple of times, so I just want to bring it to your attention. In the worship folder, we're going to say these together before communion, but uh, if you'll look there under the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechisms, question 25, uh, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Uh, just have that handy, because I am going to be referring to it. Um, so I just wanted to make you aware of that. So what we're going to look at, uh, before we read the passage, just want to briefly go over our need for a king why we need a king, why the threat of sin and the reality of sin is so powerful that should lead us to really confess our need for a king. The second thing is, what about Jesus' kingship makes him so unique? What is it about him as the son of the Most High, as, as the one who will rule on the throne of his father David? Uh, what, what is it about that that makes him different? Uh, and then how he does it how he accomplishes that work. So let's, uh, let's read together. It will be on the screen behind me. You can follow along in your Bible or in the worship folder. Luke chapter 1, uh, 26 to 38, and then skipping down to verse 46 through 55. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Later in the chapter, she sings this song. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. Behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. Uh, Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So last week, we looked at how important it was that Joseph and Mary were to name this child Jesus. Reason being, he would save his people from their sins. Uh, Not from their circumstances, not from their boring jobs, and most certainly not from their in-laws. The greatest threat to you and I is our sin, and our greatest need, as Drew mentioned last week, is to be delivered from that enemy. So I want to say it like this, we need a king. We need someone to rule us and defend us because we're absolutely powerless to stand against this enemy. The power of sin, its deceitfulness, and its domination are not aspects that I think we often consider enough or think about enough. Probably, for one or two reasons, we we don't truly believe sin is that powerful. We aren't really that frightened of it. Or maybe we're too afraid to admit how dominated we are by it. Either way, I think it's, it's not talked about enough. We don't sit on it enough. And so I wanted to do that again this week as we consider why we need a king. God warns us about the nature of sin on page 3 of the Bible. Genesis 4, chapter, excuse me, Genesis 4, verse 7. God says to Cain, in light of his envy concerning his brother Abel. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The word crouching was most often used in the Hebrew language to refer to an animal lying in wait for its prey. So think about that. The Bible is describing sin like an animal lying in wait for its prey. Its prey is you. And me. And it is crouching at the door. It is uh, ready to pounce. 
Peter likens Satan elsewhere in the Scriptures to a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. In fact, uh, there's a haunting passage in Revelation chapter 12, which we'll read this week if you're following along in community Bible reading. And as you're reading it, you might think you're reading something out of Grimm's fairy tales or the Lord of the Rings because it is a story. uh, John sees a sign in the heavens and it's a great red dragon. And the whole uh, chapter describes this dragon, which is Satan himself, thrown out of heaven down to earth where he is, quote, furious and goes off to make war on the rest of the woman's offspring. This is a woman he sees who is giving birth to a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. uh, And he's ready to to devour this child, but the child gets uh, rescued and the chapter ends with this, this sense of war, this sense of a constant battle. This red dragon is chasing uh, the woman's offspring. Satan is not sitting around trying to figure out how to dupe you and I. He's on the offensive, not the defensive. Everyone has a master, everyone has a ruler, everyone has something that they have given their allegiance to. And if you're here and not a Christian, or you might be investigating Christianity, I want to say very clearly, the Bible says that sin has dominion over you and I. Uh, You aren't free, you're enslaved to it. Our culture tries to ignore this fact, our culture often tries to sugarcoat it or come up with solutions to escape it, but the Bible is very clear. Satan is a real person. Evil is personal. And we believe that a war is raging even now. The threat is very real. And we are powerless to rule or defeat it. We are like the prey of a crouching animal. We are like a sitting duck before the fire that's coming out of this great red dragon's mouth. Uh... I want to give you two ends of the spectrum. First, Bob Dylan, who puts it like this. You're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Some of you are singing that as I'm saying it. Uh, On the other end is a retired pastor named Eugene Peterson. He puts it like this. He says, we live in slavery. True, we have in our country abolished the institutional forms of slavery and all but eliminated a servant class, but the experience of servitude is still among us and is as oppressive as ever. Freedom is on everyone's lips. Freedom is announced and celebrated, but not many feel or act free. And the evidence? We live in a nation of complainers and a society of addicts. Everywhere we turn, we hear complaints. I can't spend my money the way I want. I can't spend my time the way I want. I can't be myself. I'm under the control of others all the time. And everywhere we meet addicts, addiction to alcohol and drugs, to compulsive work habits and to obsessive consumption, the fact is we just trade masters. We stay enslaved. Think for a second about someone who's addicted to uh, to heroin or alcohol and they they stop cold turkey. You pull them out of that habit, cold turkey. Their body's dependency on that drug is manifested in the effects that you start to see, right? You might know what I'm talking about. 
You've walked through this with somebody before. I mean, if you pull someone, particularly with some of the harder drugs like heroin or cocaine, and you pull them, completely deny them the use of that, and they start to sweat, they start to shake, they start to have, have, have nightmares, they, they might start to see things. It, it, their, their body's dependency, the ma- taking that master away, affects them in a very profound manner. And it's habits like those that reflect how powerful the masters are. Um, just as a way of illustration, something that happened just recently, in fact, it was just yesterday, uh, we were at the soccer field, and I know Drew tells a lot of stories about his kids, and I'm up here, you'd think I'd be telling stories about uh, my kids, but I'm going to tell a story about Drew's girls, <laughs> just because it's this fresh in my mind. But <clears throat> my daughter, Ellie, had a snow cone uh, yesterday at the soccer field. And uh, come to find out later, Ashley tells me that her girls were lusting over the snow cone. And she actually used that word. I said, lusting? She said, oh, yeah, they were lusting. In other words, what is it about her use of that word? Why'd she use that word? Because they absolutely had to have it. And they were not going to stop until they bugged their mother to death to give them a dollar to go get one, which she eventually did. <laughs> but that, that's okay. It's okay. Um, that really struck me in her use of that word, and it really struck me in terms of the when you want something, when something has mastery over you, the blue snow cone. I know it's kind of a cheesy example, but take it up to things far, far more serious and deadly. And they really do rule us to the point that we cannot take our mind, we cannot take our eyes, we cannot take our, 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 our thoughts off that thing or that person. We must have it at all costs. It is a master over us because we are ruled. Some of the others are, are things like the desires of our flesh. The scriptures describe the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the flesh so-called impulse buying, right? I have to have it. I have to have it. Seriously? You have to have it? Yes. That's why I gave them money in exchange for it. Or how about approval? I'm absolutely addicted to pleasing people and making sure they think well of me. Well, take approval away from an approval junkie and what happens to them? Right? Oh my gosh, that person doesn't think well of me. What's... I gotta go. I gotta go figure out what's wrong. Why, why don't they think well of me? Uh, or there's codependency. I'm addicted to being needed and coming to everyone's rescue. And so when I'm not needed, what happens to me? I get very, very nervous. Why does that person not need me? Because you are absolutely addicted to that thing, that person, that desire. <clears throat> Sin is always crouching at the door of your heart. And mine too. So if we see that sin has dominion over us, and the threat that it brings is very real, it should point us to our need for a king. But not just any old king will do, right? We need the king. And so as you look at this passage, you you notice Gabriel describes Jesus, and then Mary describes Jesus. Gabriel describes Jesus to Mary, uh, in verse 31 and following. And then Mary in her song describes Jesus. So I want to look at those two things for just a minute. What will he be like as a king? What will be the nature of 
his kingship. We'll first look at Gabriel, particularly verses 32 and 33. Uh, He says, Jesus will be given the throne of his father, David. Now, you may remember uh, a few weeks back in 2 Samuel 7, we read about and heard about God's promise to David, where he said, I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. Now, scholars think that was roughly 1000 B.C., So here we are roughly a thousand years later and the angel's coming from God to repeat something God has said and tell this girl God's word is coming to pass. He does not forget his word. That's amazing. Every king in the history of the world has a beginning and an end to his rule. His rule comes to an end in one of two ways. Often he he dies... He comes to power uh, maybe as a teenager. Eventually, he dies. His rule or his reign is over. Or he's conquered by another king. His little kingdom gets conquered by a bigger kingdom and he loses his kingship. But Gabriel is saying that King Jesus will reign forever. His kingdom will not have an end. The prophet Isaiah describes something similar He says in Isaiah 9, verse 7, Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The nature of His kingship is that it will last forever. Because His throne is not established by man, but by God Himself. And the Bible in fact, characterizes Jesus' kingship as encompassing the entire earth. So it's not as though He's just going to be king over Israel. He's going to be king over the entire planet. But not only, his, the, the, not only the nature of His kingship, not only do we learn about that, but also what kind of king He'll be. Look down kind of the second half of the, the insert there if you're following along or in your Bible. Jump over to Mary's song beginning in verse 46, Uh, listen to the way the message translation expresses Mary's song in verses 51 to 53. Uh, The message translates it like this, He, that is, God has scattered the bluffing braggarts. He knocked off tyrants, excuse me, He knocked tyrants off their high horses. He pulled victims out of the mud. The starving poor have sat down to a banquet. The callous rich were left out in the cold. That's verses 51, 52, and 53. And what's interesting is that Mary is talking about the Lord as if He's already done these things. You notice that? He has done these things. He has shown strength. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He has filled the hungry. And the rich He has sent away empty. But Jesus isn't even born yet. And I can't help but think, as a faithful Jew, Mary had to know the prophetic expectations of who we read about in the call to worship. The righteous branch that God was going to raise up. And from that branch, a whole tree was going to sprout. And this one who would be reigning would be one who dealt wisely, who executed justice and righteousness. In other words, an utter reversal of the way society, even Jewish society, had come to operate. All the societal values, all the cultural norms 
were going to be flipped upside down with the coming of this king. It is a revolution. In the economy of Jesus' kingdom, the exalted and the powerful are humbled and weakened. The hungry and the thirsty are fulfilled, and those who are full and fat are sent away. It's the meek, the insignificant, the powerless, the forgotten, those who are, in the eyes of the world, foolish, who are valued and who are honored in the kingdom of Jesus because they are the ones who know how needy they are. They can admit their failure. They can, they can say, I have nothing. Jesus is not the kind of king who comes to trample the weak and inconsequential. He's a king who searches out the neediest and the lowliest and he lifts them up. And in that way, among many, many others, he's remaking the entire world. God's intent for Israel's king was that he would lead the nation by serving them. Israel's king was to be a ruler unlike any the world had ever known. And he would reflect the character of God before the people. And one of the primary ways he would do, he would do that is by shepherding them, by, by, by leading them, but not in a way that all the other kings of the ancient world would lead. He would serve them. He wasn't obsessed. He was not to be obsessed with weapons or women or wealth. He was to be a student of God's law. He was to model it before the people. And he was to be a man whose life was characterized by the way of the Lord. He would execute justice and righteousness. Uh, Jesus Christ is this King. Come in the flesh. Now, not only is he the king of great reversals, he's the kind of king who looks on the confused and the weak, kind of like uh, this teenage girl that Gabriel comes to. I mean, if anybody was a cast-off from society, it would have been Mary. And yet, he comes to her. Look what she says, verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He who is most high and mighty and holy has come so low as to consider me. That's what she's saying. And so, if if you're following along, I'm already into point three. Which is really where I want to spend the most time. Why is Jesus unlike any other king? How How does he accomplish his work of subduing us to himself? The catechism says, he executes the office of a king in subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. Jesus rules and defends, but not by overpowering with military might, but by serving and placing Himself on the front lines of battle. Now get this. Ancient kings love to sit, and you've probably seen movies where this is depicted, they love to sit on their horses, their high horse. Literally. Atop a hill overlooking the fighting that was going on in the valley. And they would look down while their their warriors, many of whom were getting slaughtered by the enemy army. But where were they? Way up here. Out of harm's way. Jesus, however, is the only king who got off his horse, went to the front, and gave himself in order to defend his people. He didn't stay on this high horse up here on the hill overlooking the battle. He got off his horse 
He went down into the valley and he faced the enemy head on. Mary calls him her savior in verse uh, 47. She says, the mighty king is also the merciful king. Again, he's unlike any that's ever lived. And how is it that he subdues us? The catechism says he executes the office of king first by subduing us to himself. And the word subdue means to conquer or bring into subjection. To overpower by superior force. And what's so incredible about King Jesus is how he accomplishes his work. Mary says, verse 51, look at it right in the middle of the song. He has shown strength with his arm. Now, in the ancient world, the king or the ruler's arm was a symbol of strength, a symbol of power and influence. And when the Bible talks about the Lord's arm, it's most often referring to some sort of victory or some sort of military conquering action. A flexed arm of the king meant he was going to conquer. He meant business when his arm was flexed. Unlike mine when my arm gets flexed. The prophet Isaiah says the Lord has bared His holy arm in Isaiah 52. And ultimately, how, how does this happen? Ultimately, Jesus would conquer His enemies by bearing not only His arm, His entire body. By stretching His arms out on a cross in the greatest act of love the world's ever known. His moment of greatest weakness was His finest hour. He was overpowered by the wrath of His Father. He was brought into subjection under the Father's hand so that you and I could stand strong in His power, in His victory, in His salvation. Jesus, the one who only deserved a crown, took a cross so you and I who only deserve the cross might receive a crown. There's no king like King Jesus. So in terms of the everyday, where does that leave us? The, the, the application of all of this. If he's the king, if he's this kind of a king, well, I mean, really what difference does it make? And I think if we look at Mary's reaction, the most radical thing she says in the entire passage is verse 38. And it is, it's, it's a clue for us because it is a, a motto, a mantra by which Christians are called to live. She says in verse 38, after she receives this news, after she has this conversation with Gabriel, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, I'm just here to tell you, if you live your life by those two statements, get ready. Because you are saying to God, whatever your word says, whatever you say, let it be to me according to that. I'm signing up. Now, again, think about what Mary's just been told. Even though, Mary, you're a virgin, you're going to conceive a child who will be a king like any other. You're going to have God, the Son. He'll be great, and He'll be the Son of the Most High. I mean, all the different descriptions that are used. And she's troubled. Well, wouldn't you be? Ladies. I mean, she's trying to figure out, Luke says, the greeting. She was troubled and was trying to figure out what sort of greeting might this be because, you know, it's not every day that I get visited by an angel. 
Being troubled must have looked like fear. It must have looked like absolute panic because what does Gabriel say after that? Verse 30, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He gives her an encouragement. And yet the last words of this scene are humble obedience. And so the question is for us, how do we get there? How does she get there? And this is how I want to conclude. The statements of Gabriel are key to answering this question, so I want to go through them as we finish. First, we have to know and believe the reality that the Lord is with you. Emmanuel means God with us. And so Jesus Christ coming in the flesh means God has come near. He's moved into the neighborhood. He's become one of us in order to taste death. And knowing, experiencing that truth will transform us. It's through faith in Jesus that the Gospel says the Lord is with you. In fact, He's living inside of you. Secondly, we've got to know and trust that the Lord is for you. He, respond, he, he, he says to Mary, you have found favor, uh, verse 30, with God. Mary didn't do anything to deserve this. It was God's grace and God's grace alone that had come to her to grant her the favor that she was now experiencing. And yet because fear and anxiety rule so many and so often, even Mary right at this moment, God says to her and to us, do not be afraid. If you've experienced the grace of God through Jesus, there's no need to fear because as the Bible says elsewhere, if God is for us, then who in the world could be against us? And lastly, we won't know the first two realities. We won't know the Lord is with you. The Lord is for you. We won't know, experience that into the depths of our soul unless we are first overshadowed, subdued, conquered, by the power of God's Spirit. She asks, how will this happen? In verse 35, Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of God will overshadow you. Jesus subdues us to Himself by conquering our hearts. He overshadows us. The word literally means to cast a shade upon or to envelop in a haze of brilliance. It is being overwhelmed by the glory of God. And when the glory of God is the shade under which you are living, all of life is going to be viewed through that grid. Because Jesus was overshadowed by the Father's wrath. You and I, through faith, get overshadowed by the Father's favor. We get the same kind of overshadowing Mary experienced here. And the more that sinks in, the more that really begins to to deep down affect the the, the, the bowels of your heart, heart, the more our life changes from saying things like, behold, I am a servant of other people and their approval, or behold, I am a servant of material goods, or you fill in the blank, whatever it says, whatever they say, I'll do. Your mantra moves from that toward, behold, I'm the Lord's servant, whatever he says, I'll do. And the ability and the faith to do that comes from having your heart conquered by the presence of God. And hearing God is with you and God is for you because Jesus has come. When God says, for example, love your neighbor as you love yourself, if His Word rules my life and He's the King, 
then I listen to that and begin to work out how it is that I love in everyday situations when I come in contact with my neighbor. Because God loves me and is for me, I can trust His Word is good and worth obeying. And so, for us this morning, King Jesus is changing us by the power of those truths. And in turn, through us, He's conquering, He's changing our city and our world. And it's all for His glory. And and so, I want to pray to that end, uh, that He would work that and accomplish that in us um, this morning and, uh, well, for all eternity. So, let's pray. Father, we confess to you how, uh, how dominated by sin we are, how easily uh, duped and fooled and tricked by it we are, and uh, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the kind of king who, who doesn't come to uh, overpower us uh, with military might, but who, who would come and, and, and die for us, who comes to serve us who comes to, to live the life we should have lived and, and die the death that we deserve, the one who deserves a crown takes a cross uh, instead of us taking the cross and we receive the crown. Jesus, it's amazing news and we pray uh, by your Spirit, particularly as we draw closer to Christmas, that your kingship, your rule over our lives would sink deep into the depths of our hearts and it might change our attitude to one of humble submission, humble obedience, that our lives might bring honor and glory to you and you alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
takes away our sin. seen a king like the king that we serve, and if there was any doubt as to that fact, then this meal that we celebrate together this morning, as we've been doing every week during the Advent season, is proof of that, because no king has ever come to offer himself in the place of his subjects that they might be whole, knowing that for them to be whole, he must be broken. No king has ever taken his wealth And given it away so that those among his subjects who were poor might be made rich. But this king has. And that's exactly what we come to celebrate this morning. And so I invite you this morning, if you are a baptized Christian, and if you are at peace in your heart, because this is a meal of reconciliation, and so if if there's peace in your heart, if those two qualifications that we talk about all the time, if, if those two are true of you, then I invite you to come to this table this morning to celebrate Uh, with us, uh, his body broken and his blood shed for us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Uh, The way we do this in our church is we ask that you come down the center aisle. There'll be people up front that will serve you the elements. If you would return on the side to your seat, then once everyone is served, then we will celebrate uh, the meal together. And so it's very fitting this morning then 
that we celebrate uh, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, together. This is how he subdues your heart to himself, is that you would see the kindness which he shows to you in his body broken and his blood shed. And so I say, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and having given thanks, he broke it, and he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. And after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take, eat, and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's the very thing that we are called to do during this time of the year. And so let's pray uh, as we come to this table that we would do just that, that we would remember him, and that in remembering him that our hearts would be, would be captivated by wondering of him, and that the result would be that we would be a people who are subdued into obedience by his love and kindness towards us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, and if you're, a, if you're an elder or a deacon candidate, please come and help me serve uh, the meal as I pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray and give thanks to you that you are a king unlike any other king. And so, because you are a king unlike any other king, we owe you an obedience unlike any other obedience. And so even now as we celebrate this meal together, Lord Jesus, would you come and form us as your people that we might bear the fruit of your spirit, that you might be glorified in the good works that we do on your behalf. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you not only have purchased our redemption, but you have also purchased our everlasting hope. We celebrate you this morning. Increase our joy in our wonder, in our amazement, that our obedience to you might be increased as well, we pray. In your name and for your sake, amen. Uh, come, please, as you feel led to celebrate this morning.
Amen. Taking the bread together then. This is the body of Christ for you. And taking the cup together. The blood of Christ for you. Praise God. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing, and then we'll be done. Father, as I consider these stories we've been reading in the Gospels, the issue when the angel comes to those to whom you send them is their unbelief and their fear. That that what is keeping them, and in the same way what is keeping us from the obedience that you desire of us, is all of the ways that we still fail. We fail to believe the promises are true. We fail to believe that indeed you do love us, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that you are a God who sings over us because your delight in us is so great, that our fear and our unbelief and our self-regard and our um, desire for self-preservation and all of these things keep us from the kind of faith that you long for us to live with that would produce the kind of loving obedience that you demand of us. And so I pray that even as we've celebrated this meal together and as we've listened to the gospel preached and as we've sung these songs of longing and hope that you would break into our hearts and break through the unbelief and the fear and the insecurity and the worry and the anxiety that would keep us from making this time of year what it is meant to be, a time of reflection and joy and celebration and of living out the truth of the gospel and the way that we love our city and love one another. So use this means of grace, this meal that you have set before us and commanded us to eat together this morning, to do just that, to cause us to see you in such a powerful way that our hearts don't stand a chance against the love that we see that you have for us, that you might indeed subdue us and lead us into the paths of obedience, that we might bear fruit that would glorify you. That's our prayer, it's our longing, it's our hope. So come and do it by the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Uh, amen. I, I do feel compelled to let you know that uh, when Jesus does come back, He will not come back in the same manner He came the first time. Uh, the second time, you will know for sure uh, who the boss is. And you will either bow the knee uh, or you will be conquered uh, as His enemy. Uh, so I'd implore you to put your faith and your hope and your trust in Him. Uh, and as I raise my hands to give you this benediction, this is the King's commission on you as you go from here, uh, as He sends you out on the mission uh, to accomplish His purpose for His glory. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and give you His peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in His peace.